Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 81. The second half of the baseball schedule is underway. The Brewers are at the beginning of a make-or-break 15-game stretch before the trade deadline. It could not have started any better in Cincinnati. The six games against the Reds, three before the break, three after the break, they totally flipped the standings from two down to two up. The pitching, extraordinary. The hitting, not so much. That's been the narrative the whole year. We'll break all of that down, but what a start to the second half of the schedule. It is a big day on this day two years ago in the Bucks title run of 2021. We will talk a little bit about that right off the top. And then we will wrap up with the Open Championship, also known as the British Open on American Podcasts. It is called the British Open, not the Open. The last major of the season. So weird, but we are going to pick our winner for the Open Championship at the end of the podcast. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! We're going to smash up the middle, base hit the center! Snap. He looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, this day in history, two years ago, we talked about this, I think, on the Monday podcast or the Friday podcast last week that we're in this run right now of on this day a year ago or on this day two years ago was this game from the run or this game from the championship run. Two years ago, today. Game five in Phoenix, the value-oop, arguably the biggest single play in Bucks franchise history. I'm going to give you both calls. I have both of them saved. This is the Mike Breen call. Booker the drive, gets inside, leans in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. And a foul. Giannis on the alley-oop. What a turnaround. A chance to take the lead and the turnover as the Bucks now up by three and a free throw coming up. That's the one that I heard live in the moment. And then this was the Ted Davis call of the same. Booker. Booker. Driving. Chicken wings again. In the lane. Holiday rips it away. 16 seconds to go to Giannis. Slam it. How about that? 122-119. Man, oh man. <laughs> that was the moment. I know they had to win game six, and it took a Giannis 50-piece to win game six. The more I think back about that run, and there are always little moments in every title run that you needed to have happen or injuries you needed to dodge or shots that went this way or foul calls that went that way, it's the sum of a lot of little parts to win a title, to get everything to go right to win a title. When I look back at the bigger picture of that run, that might have been the moment. That might have been the play. 
yes, they had to win another game. And yes, it took another worldly, a historic effort from Giannis to win that final game at home. And that was a tight game. That's the moment, though. I remember watching that game. I remember my wife and I were at a viewing party for that game, and nobody showed up. I'm not going to say where we were at because I don't want to disparage it, and it shouldn't be disparaged. It's a great spot. Maybe it's not a known spot for Bucks games or for sports coverage. That's probably what hurt them, although we've been there for Packer games, and we went there for the Packer-London game last year. It was packed. Maybe it was just a Bucks game thing. I forget what day of the week it was. Maybe it was a Saturday or was it a Sunday? I don't remember what it would have been two years ago with a leap year in there. It might have been a Sunday night. There just weren't a lot of people there. They advertised it as a viewing party. We got there, and I want to say there were six total people in a pretty big establishment. And they had tables out. They had the projection TV down. And we sat and watched the whole thing there because in that run for how big those games were, once I sat down, that's where I was watching the game, and I wasn't going to move. We couldn't risk missing anything during that title run. We sat and watched the entire game there, and again, I think it was maybe eight total people, two bartenders, my wife and I, and then a table of four other people. And the four other people that were there were sort of casually watching the game but had no interest in really what was happening other than, wow, it would be nice if the Bucks won. Kind of one of those deals. When that play happened... I screamed expletives (laughs) so loud. I was speaking in tongues. I don't even know what I was saying. I was running around the building calling a couple buddies of mine. How the bleep does Drew Holiday have the bleeping bleep to throw that bleeping pass on? And I was going nuts. And I am certain I freaked out the few amount of people that were around me. Like, this guy takes this a little too seriously. You might want to take a Xanax or something, my man. Don't take it so seriously. It was such a weird environment. But we watched that whole game. They were down early. But then they had the lead, double-digit lead for a lot of the game. And the game reminded me a bit of, was it game five against Brooklyn? Where they had the lead all night. They had a double-digit lead. And then Kevin Durant went nuclear in the second half. Brooklyn stormed back. They took game five. It felt like the season was over. It felt like, okay, that was your one chance. You had the lead all night on the road. You needed one road win. You had the lead all night on the road and couldn't seal the deal. I recall feeling after that game five loss to Brooklyn, I'm pretty sure we even said it on the air that next day on B93's morning show, they're going to win game six. The Bucs will win game six at home. It just felt far-fetched at that point that they were going to go back and win a game seven in Brooklyn after having had the lead on the road the whole night and blowing it. Similar feel, Game 5 against Phoenix. They had that double-digit lead, close to it at halftime, had it in the third quarter, and slowly but surely, with about five minutes left in the game, Phoenix started chipping away. We get to a point where it's a one-point game in that moment, 120-119. to I will never, ever, ever forget my feeling when Devin Booker was bringing that ball across half-court. And in my mind, I'm looking at the time left in the game and the shot clock, the first thought I had was, no matter what happens here, the Bucks are going to have a chance to win it. I assumed that the Suns would score just because of how I'm conditioned as a Bucks fan over 30-plus years. And given how quickly they had taken that lead down and how hot Phoenix was, they had the momentum. It felt like, okay, if they score here, I want to say they had the ball with 34, 35 seconds left. I did the math. All right, we're going to have about 10 seconds left probably, 8 to 10 seconds to try to win this game at the end of it. Booker on the drive, as Breen said, and I love Ted Davis with that homer chicken wing. He called that that whole series. If you listen to any of the radio calls, 
Booker was notorious and is still, but was in that series notorious for that half-step chicken wing to create space. I love that he called that out during that play. They get that steal, and it's just euphoria. I see Drew creep in there. He rips it away. I look at the time again. It's under 20 seconds left. My instant thought in that moment is, okay, they have to foul. We're up by one. Drew's crossing half court. And in those seconds of while that's happening, all I'm thinking about is Phoenix has to foul. Like Breen said, we're going to get two free throws. We'll be up by three. And we're one stop away. That's how I thought it was going to play out in that moment. All of a sudden, you see Giannis at the bottom of the TV screen streaking down the floor on the other side. We're going streaking down the floor on the other side. There's a brief moment watching that in real time where I thought, boy, he could probably pass it to Giannis, but why would you risk doing that when Phoenix is in a must-foul situation and you have a chance with two free throws to make this a three-point game? But there he is. There's Giannis, and he's he's open. Drew rears back and throws it. I think my heart stopped because so much can go wrong. That pass has to be so precise and perfect to get that alley-oop, even though there was space. And even though Drew is an all-star guard and Giannis is an MVP and you would think those two would make it look easy, and they did, so much could have gone wrong in that moment. The throw is a little more toward the rim and bounces off the rim or goes over his hands. If that's a mistake, if that pass isn't the pass that happened, it could be one of the all-time blunders, one of the all-time, what was the the reference we had last week or two weeks ago, the Merkel boner? That could have been one of the all-time boners in sports history. If you risk not just getting the foul there, throwing the alley-oop and you don't connect and you turn it over and lose that game, but it's perfect. It hits him right in stride. He dunks it, and then you got the foul on top of it. I'll never forget seeing Giannis then, that baseline camera shot, staring that vicious mean mug into the camera and thinking, my God, they're up by three, and they get a free throw. They can seal it right here. Giannis missed the free throw, but he missed it so bad, which he was an expert at. Outside of game six where he was, whatever, 17 of 18, he had a lot of misses in that final series, not maybe so much in the series before that. In that final series against the Suns, he had so many misses that were so bad. It allowed him to get in and get a tip up, and that's what happened in that moment. He missed it so bad. He was able to get in, use his length, tip the ball backwards, and it ends up in Chris Middleton's hands. They have to foul Middleton then. He hits one free throw, right? I don't think he hit two. I think he missed the first one because, of course, because why not (laughs) just add to it? He hits that second free throw, four-point game, and that's all she wrote given the time that was left, 123 to 119. That's the moment to me, now that I look back at it, and we've had a couple of years where they won the series. If they lose that game, maybe they could have done what they did against Brooklyn and come back and won in a game seven. It's so hard to do that, though, with so much on the line to go into hostile territory and take down a team in their home environment in game seven with a title on the line. It just felt like in that moment when Booker had that ball and it was a one-point game, I just remember thinking, you have to win this game. You have to win this game. If you don't win this game, I don't know how you're going to come back and win in Game 7. I still felt in that moment confident that if they lost, they would still win Game 6. It just felt like you've had the lead all night on the road. If you blow this one, you're never going to have a better opportunity to get the one road win you need because we're not going to lose in Milwaukee. This is the one you have to get. Please make something happen, and boy, did they make something happen. One of the great moments in Bucks history.
and I've, I'd have to go back and look at any individual plays in the 71 championship series or the run of the finals in 74. I can't think of one. There are other big moments in that title run in 2021. The Middleton winner in game one. I mean, obviously, they just don't compare given the circumstances and given how massive that moment was in the finals in a do-or-die moment. It's just I, I'll never forget it. And the best part about it was the little cherry on top, that angle that you see of the camera shot a little above the backboard that's aimed at Giannis as he's catching it and dunking it. And you see Chris Paul, dangerous foul, by the way. Chris Paul doesn't get nearly enough heat for he had to foul. I get that. But he doesn't get nearly enough heat for pushing Giannis in midair where if he puts a little more strength behind it, that could have been disastrous. And we're talking about a guy two weeks before that or 10 days before that that suffered what looked to be a catastrophic knee injury to get shoved in midair like that. He had to foul, but there had to be a better way to do that. As he's fouling him, you see in the front row Chris Paul's boy LeBron. He had a front row seat for the whole thing with the entourage. And remember, it was LeBron tweeting at Chris Paul when it was 2-0 and Phoenix was up, and he said two more. Two more, Chris, and you're going to get that ring for him to have a front row seat to that dunk, to that moment. Just (laughs) chef's kiss just made it even better than it could have possibly been. That's two years ago today. I definitely disturbed a lot of people at that venue, at the establishment that we were at. We've been back a few times since. And like I said, for Packer games, I've been there. It's packed in. I don't know what it was about that night specifically and why that was not somewhere people wanted to be for that game. Once we sat down, though, I wasn't going anywhere for how big that moment was and how big that game was. And, yeah, I definitely freaked some people out. They were certainly happy when I paid that tab and left. That was two years ago today. Okay, let's talk about the Brew Crew. What a start. What a start to the second half of the schedule. We've been talking since June 16th, since my birthday, that Friday, when Pittsburgh was in first place. How long ago does that feel? That feels like it was 10 years ago. When Pittsburgh was in first place and the Brewers were At their worst moment, hopefully we don't see a worse moment this year, they were at their worst moment of the season where they were right around 500 or maybe right at 500. It felt in that moment that from that day, June 16th, through the trade deadline, which is about 40 games or 35 games or 40 games, that would make or break the year. In that run now, with this sweep of Cincinnati, they are 18-8 and since that date. We talked on Friday about a smaller size then where Friday started a run of 15 games right up against the trade deadline where you determine whether or not you're going to be buyers or sellers or I guess status quo at the trade deadline. How aggressive you are going to be at the deadline will be determined by these 15 games and you're 3-0. and <laughs> You're 3-0 and to start it. The pitching. The pitching. We're going to talk about the offense and the deficiencies of that in a little bit. It wasn't all roses. You love the results. The results hide a little bit of what continues to be a problem with the with the offense and the consistency of the offense, the ability to score runs, especially with guys on third and less than two outs. That was problematic most of the weekend. We will get to that. You've got to start, though, with the pitching. That's as good as you're going to get from the Sunday before the All-Star break with the Wade Miley one nothing shutout. Then on Friday, Corbin Burns looked as close to 2021 Corbin Burns as we have seen this year. Since he got the haircut, he is 3-0 with an ERA of 1.89. That haircut maybe turned his season around. 
Six innings of shutout ball, 13 strikeouts. He was striking out guys like it was a bodily function on Friday. The only thing that he had go sour on him was when he had to step off the mound in the fifth inning, I want to say. He had two outs and nobody on. It looked to me, as somebody who has suffered from migraines at points in my life, it looked to me like he had a migraine settle in. If you've had migraines, sometimes for me, all the time, but for most migraine sufferers, out of nowhere, when you get a migraine, you get what I just call blinky lights, flashy lights. There's probably some kind of technical medical term for them. You get a little flash of light in the middle of your vision. And for me, for some people, it just stays there and eventually it goes away and then a headache settles in. For me, the flashy lights slowly expand. There's a field of vision in the middle of the flashy lights that you can kind of see. And it just expands out to the expanse of your vision and... After 20 minutes, the flashy lights go away, and then, more often than not, a headache settles in. The way that he was blinking and looked dizzy, it looked to me like those flashy lights had settled in. And a lot of times, you get migraines when you're dehydrated, and you're in a hot weather venue, or you're at Summerfest, or something like that. It happened to me when we were at the Senior Open in Stevens Point. There was about 45 minutes there where I really couldn't see anything. Luckily, the headache wasn't that bad, but it happens in those circumstances. That's what it looked like to me. It was certainly dehydration of some kind. He had to step off the mound, kneel down. He didn't puke. He didn't puke. They bring him out some water, and eventually he got himself right. Maybe they gave him one of those IVs we were talking about two weeks ago, the Matthew J. IVs. Maybe they gave him one of those when he went back in the locker room after he got the final out of that fifth inning. He did come back out for the sixth inning and had two more strikeouts. Pagaro, Piamps, and Williams come in on Friday. Seventh inning, eighth inning, ninth inning. Do not give up a hit. Do not give up a walk. Another one nothing win. Back-to-back one nothing wins. Cut to Saturday. Freddie Peralta, who kind of like Burns has been uneven this year, has his best start of the year. Six innings, shutout baseball, double-digit strikeouts. Pagaro, Piamps, Williams again. Seventh, eighth, and ninth innings get the job done. Three nothing. We got a little more offense on Saturday with the solo bomb from Yelly, the solo bomb from Contreras, and the solo bomb from Owen Miller. The pitching exquisite again on Saturday. That was their third straight shutout. First time that's happened since 2013. You ready for a fun fact? Here we go. We gotta have a fun fact sounder in here at some point. The last time they had three straight shutouts in a row, 2013, which was a miserable season. It happened in July of 2013, about this time of year, all against the Marlins. And the day after they got that third straight shutout, it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The day after that third straight shutout on Sunday, the Marlins, who were having a bad year too, they decide, you know what, we're going to call up our top prospect. This season's probably gone. Let's at least get this guy some at-bats, get him some major league experience. Who was that top prospect called up after the Brewers shut down the Marlins those three days in 2013? One Christian Yelich. How about that? Time is a flat circle. It's just wild, those connections sometimes. And I forget who the second guy was. Was it? No, it was Gallardo. The three guys in 2013, (laughs) this list. Kyle Loesch, who gets a lot of heat. If you actually look at his numbers for his three years in Milwaukee, his first year was really good. Borderline an all-star year. His second year was more mediocre, and his third year was Jeff Supon 2.0. He gets compared to Supon because he was an expensive free agent that was in St. Louis and came to Milwaukee and then had a bad year. Supon had three bad years of his four years. He had one good year, a kind of good year the first year, and the next three were a dumpster fire, culminating with that start in game four of the NLDS in 2008. I think he was there for a year or two after that, too. 
Loesch was pretty good. He was good, at least good, that first year. Mediocre the second year, awful that third year. Kyle Loesch, Giovanni Gallardo, which makes sense given that era, and Willie Peralta, not Freddie Peralta. Hey, Willie. Willie Peralta was a part of that in 2013. They get the third straight shutout. Then on Sunday, Adrian Hauser takes the hill, and this bum gives up a run. <laughs> not just one run, three runs. What a bum! I did actually see some of that on Brewer Twitter. I've got to stop going on Brewer Twitter. It's not good for me mentally. It's not good for my mental health. It's not good for my physical health. I can't tell if people are being sarcastic. I don't think they were. Once the Brewers were down 3-1, to one, he gave up a two-run bomb and whatever inning it was, he, he went five and two-thirds and gave up three runs. That's a good start. That's an, a third of an inning from a quality start, five and two-thirds of three runs from your fifth starter who was supposed to begin the year in the bullpen. He was good. Enough. And people, after they got down three to one, get him out of here. Get him off the field. He's three and two with a 3.79 ERA and 60 innings pitch, guys. I couldn't tell if they were being serious or they were being sarcastic because the standard had been so high the last three games that any run would say, get this guy out of here. They're down one nothing. Yelly goes yard again. 13 home runs. He had 14 last year. We are fully back to Miami Yelly and All-Star Yelly. Could we be back to MVP Yelly? Time will tell. The stats in 2018 through this point of the year are very comparable. Whether or not he is going to be a man legitimately on fire in late August and September will determine that. That's Remember that year? It was from about August 25th through the end of the year. It felt like every other day he was hitting a home run, and he was. That's how hot he was at the end of 2018. He'd have to really catch fire. It's so fun, though, to watch him right now. He is at least back to all-star Miami Yelly. That tied the game, then down 3-1, RBI single from Christian Yelich. Makes it 3-2, Owen Miller tied it with a sack fly. And then Andrew Monasterio, you got to tip your cap. It's a lot of random names that don't put a lot of fear into opposing pitchers, I wouldn't guess. We're going to talk more about that in a minute or two. But Monasterio got the job done against an all-star closer with two outs in the eighth inning and a runner in scoring position. Opposite field, RBI single, put him up 4-3. to three. Hobie Milner got a lot of credit in the postgame from Craig Council for his performance on Sunday. Piguero was not available because of the workload on Friday, Saturday. Piamps not available because of the workload on Friday and Saturday. Devin was available and said he wanted to pitch. I guess told Craig before the game that he would pitch if the circumstance dictated. It seems like it's going to all year. Those other two guys, though, were not available. He goes to Milner in the seventh. I thought he'd have to go somewhere else just to squeeze that eighth inning. He goes right back to Milner, and he throws two shutout. Council said that was not a part of the plan. Milner basically went to him in between the innings and said, I am good. I am ready to roll for the eighth inning. Goes out there and gives you two scoreless. He's having a sensational year. Then Williams marches himself out there for a third straight game, just the second time in his career. Bing, bong, boom, one, two, three, through that Reds order to get a 4-3 to three win, and they sweep away Cincinnati to begin this 15-game stretch and the first three games of the second half. The six games, three before the All-Star break and three after the All-Star break, six games against Cincy, they go 5-1. and one. They totally flip the standings. They were down two games in the NL Central to Cincy when that run started. Now they're up two games in the NL Central. It puts the Brewers at 20-9 and nine against the NL Central this year, a 690 winning percentage. Only team that's better in their own division, the Braves, who are the best team in baseball. They're 22-6 and six against fellow AL East opponents. And the Brewers also get to 42 and 9. That record never ceases to amaze me. 42 and 9 when they score at least four runs. That is a winning percentage of 
823. And as we've talked about, four runs is not a crazy threshold. We're not talking about having to go out there and score seven runs a game to win games. Four is not a lot. 42-9, and nine, best team in baseball when they are able to score four runs in a game, which they did on Sunday. But the story of the weekend is the pitching, just the efforts you got from Burns and Peralta. Peguero, Piamps, and Williams, both days, Friday, Saturday. Then Bryce Wilson, who got an out on Sunday. Two from Milner and two innings from Milner and Devin Williams again on Sunday. And Hauser kept you in the game, which is all you want from your fifth starter. Five and two-thirds, three runs given up, five strikeouts. Got a couple of key double plays. Terang had some nice defensive plays in there as well on Sunday. You're not going to get a better run. You're just not going to get a better pitching effort than what we've seen the game before the All-Star break and the first three coming out of the All-Star break. There was some injury news on Sunday. Add this to the list of the weird history of Brewer injuries. Rowdy Telez was rehabbing. What was his injury? The forearm injury. What was the fake injury again? <laughs> the fake forearm injury. The I'm in a slump where I'm hitting 170 forearm injury. He was shagging fly balls in the outfield, which seems weird, but counsel, when he was probed about that, questioned about that after the game, he said that's not unusual just to get some reps in for an infielder to shag fly balls in the outfield just to get some steps in, to get some energy out there. That's what he was doing on Sunday. He, This is so gross. I almost feel like I had to put a not safe for work on here. He gets his finger somehow stuck in the padding of the outfield wall, and as he's pulling his hand back, rips the full nail off of his ring finger, fractures the tip of that finger, and needed 17 stitches at the top of his finger? How big are Roddy Telez's hands? Said the guy. Said the guy with medium-sized hands. Medium-sized. 17 stitches. He is now going to be out. It looked like he was going to be back after the road trip was over. He is now going to be out four weeks, it looks like, a full month. Not that he was giving you a ton anyway. We've been over the issues that Rowdy has had. He had been mired in a deep slump, hadn't hit a home run in over a month. The OPS is below 700. He hasn't been doing a whole lot. You had hoped that once he gets back, maybe he's got a clearer head and a fresh mindset, hit the reset button, and he could get going again. It's going to be a while now. Put that, though, on the list. I think Brew Crew Ball had a full article out about all the weird injuries the Brewers have had. Put that one up there with the Lucroy suitcase injury, one of the weirder things that has happened in a Brewer injury situation. Remember he said his story was that he injured his throwing hand checking into a hotel when his wife accidentally dropped a suitcase on his hand? It's not a lie if you believe it. It's almost too intricate of a lie. It's so weird that it sounds bad. Got to find something simpler. The best lies are simple. That's what I've found in my lifetime. That's what I've learned so far in almost 40 years on this planet. That one just sounded, everybody had a raised eyebrow at that one. That's the story he was sticking to, though, although I've heard some rumors that maybe there was a fight and there was a punching of a wall, a la Devin Williams. That's another one. The Two years ago, Devin Williams hitting the aisle at the end of the year by punching a wall in frustration in the post Central Division Championship celebration, he punched a wall. Then you had, way back, Doug Melvin got attacked by a scorpion in 2013. Frankie Rodriguez, K-Rod, remember in spring training, was it 2014 or 2015, he's walking around barefoot and stepped on a small cactus. That put him on the DL. One of the relief pitchers from, I want to say, 07 or 08, Matt Wise. That's not a name a ton of people will remember. He was supposed to be the closer of the year that he hurt himself. Hurt his pitching hand 
by lacerating it on salad tongs. What kind of salad tongs are we using here? Ginsu salad tongs? We have a long history of bizarre injuries. Add the Rowdy Telez one to that. Not as crazy as the scorpion or the cactus or the salad tongs, I would say, or the suitcase, but it's up there. He's out for a month now. Now, we've talked about the pitching, the injury. Let's talk about, kind of in conjunction with Rowdy, the offense. They did just enough. I'm not going to be the guy that's going to rain on the parade of a sweep of a first-place team and getting back into first place by two games and starting this 15-game stretch the way they did. We're not going to be too negative today. The offense needs something. That's not breaking news. We've talked about that on a bunch of podcasts. Any Brewer fan with a brain and two eyes knows this team needs to add something. With Rowdy now out four weeks, if they don't call Keston up, look, Owen Miller is having a good year, a pretty good year. The periphery numbers aren't great. He's hitting 280. That's the second best on the team. He's hitting with a little bit of pop. He's not a natural first baseman. Council said after the Rowdy injury came to light, was must have been on Sunday's pregame, he said that, quote, we're going to see a lot of Owen Miller at first base. That seems to be what they're going to do. Keston's hitting 330 in AAA with a bunch of home runs and OPS over 1,000. Pretty sure he's playing defense at first base at least 50% of the time as well as DHing. If there were ever a time with Rowdy out for four weeks now to just do what we talked about, call Keston up and give him three weeks, well, now less than three weeks, two weeks, two and a half weeks worth of at-bats until the trade deadline, if he can get hot or show you signs of being 2019 Keston, maybe you're comfortable rolling with him in that position or using him more often. If he shows you nothing, that was his last chance, and you really then explore picking somebody up for first base. Given what first base has Produced so far this year, and now given the Rowdy injury, it just doesn't seem like there's any interest in giving Keston any kind of run at first base. Maybe today with the day off, after digesting the Rowdy injury all day on Sunday, seeing the start in Cincinnati, perhaps they look at something on the off day today before they start in Philly tomorrow. If he's not called up today or before Tuesday's game in Philly, I just don't see him getting called up at any point this year. I don't know why. I guess I know why. (laughs) I mean, he's just not been good the last three years. As we talked about, though, his numbers last year, given the scope of how poor the offense performed last year and this year so far, a 750 OPS is not bad. Owen Miller's OPS is 720. doesn't take a whole lot of walks. He does strike out. The batting average is solid. He does not have a high OPS. Keston had a higher OPS last year than Owen Miller does this year. I, just given where they're at right now and desperate for any kind of offense and the injuries at first base, if they're not going to give him one last chance at this point, he's never going to get one. And I don't know what it, kind of trade value that he would have. I've heard some people say, well, then you got to trade him. Well, I'm not sure <laughs> if you're not going to call him up. If the worst offense in baseball is not looking to Keston Hira to give them any kind of anything at this point in the year, I'm not sure what kind of trade value he is going to have when you call another GM and offer up Keston Hira. Maybe as a throw-in. In some bigger deal, you sprinkle Keston in there like a little extra parm on a fettuccine Alfredo. And if it works out, great. If not, whatever. No harm, no foul. If they don't make a move today, I just don't see it happening. They're going to go with Owen at first base for the foreseeable future, but they need to do something. The offense gave you just enough on Friday in a 1-0 win. They gave you just enough, really, on Saturday with three solo bombs. And on Sunday, you got a three-hit day from Yelly with a single double and a home run. You got a pretty decent-sized hit from Jesse Winker, who still has been miserable and dormant for most of the year. You got the big hit from Monasterio. You just look at their lineup, though. I was texting a buddy of mine about this lineup. 
at the top, Yelich, you obviously feel good about right now. He has been excellent this year. William Contreras is on a 10-game hit streak in the month of July where he is hitting 370. He's got his average up to 272, pretty firmly in that two-hole. He's been really good. Yelly Contreras, and Adamas is getting it turned around. He was down to 196 with the batting average. That's up to 213. He's hitting for some power again. His at-bats have been better. One, two, three, I don't mind. Yelich, Contreras, Adamas. After that, it's hard to fathom winning a playoff series against a team like the Dodgers or against a team like the Diamondbacks or the Braves with this lineup. After one, two, three, they had Jesse Winker yesterday. The clubhouse loves him. Maybe he's a likable guy for the fans. We are in the middle of July now, and Jesse Winker with that hit, and it was a big hit in Cincy on Sunday, but it's one hit. He is hitting 201 with one home run. I simply cannot believe there are not better DH options at this point in the year than a guy who has to have. How many at-bats does he have on the year? He's got to have 150, right? Let's just see. 154. A guy with 154 at-bats batting 201 with one home run and a 579 OPS. That is your DH. There have to be. There are. We know there are better options out there. Then Owen Miller, who's been okay, but the rest of these guys, Rymel Tapia, Blake Perkins, Andrew Monasterio, again, big hit on Sunday. Is that a guy you want in there every day for the rest of the year and in big playoff games? You sort of live with 8-9, and nine. Bryce Terang, 0-3, he's hitting 202. Weimer's hitting 209. You kind of live with those two guys at the bottom of the order because they're giving you superb defense. Terang was flashing that on Saturday and Sunday. He could win a gold glove. That's how good he is. That's a part of the reason you live with the offensive inadequacies and because he's a rookie and you hope at some point these at-bats are going to accumulate. He's going to get better. He's going to get more comfortable. You hope for that. Maybe that doesn't happen. You live with it, though, right now because his defense is so good. And Weimer, you've seen more flashes. His OPS is a little under 700. He's flashed power. His defense is so good in center field. And the 8-9 guys in a lineup, traditionally speaking, are not guys that are going to put up gaudy offensive numbers. The problem the Brewers have is that little gap in the lineup, four through seven, four guys. After you get past Yelich, Contreras, Adamas, whomever you have at cleanup through the seven hole and then Terang and Weimer at the end of it, none of those guys really strike fear into the heart of an opposing team. They have to find a bat or two. I don't know who they're going to be. I just hope this team learns from last year. I hope we're not going to relive last year where they were in first place and instead of getting a bat, they got nobody and traded their all-star closer. Let's not do Groundhog Day with that. Let's not relive that scenario. Get a bat. Get two. I don't think the Cardinals are going to trade with you. I've seen the rumors of Nolan Arenado or Paul Goldschmidt. They're going to be available maybe because the Cardinals are out of it. I have no idea what that would cost. You're talking about the reigning MVP in Goldschmidt and Arenado, a future Hall of Famer. You'd love to have either because not only – are they impact bats? They fit in the spaces that you need them to fit at third base and first base. That's where the holes are for the Brewers. For those reasons, they would be perfect. You'd have to give up a boatload of prospects, and there would probably be a tax on it just because the Cardinals are trading within the division against a rival. That's probably going to cost you another prospect. Are you willing to throw four prospects? If you assume everyone not named Jackson Churio is on the table, and I... They probably have a list that's a lot longer than that of guys that are unavailable. In my mind, as a guy, which we talked about last week, that can't conceptualize the future and is only in it for this year and only thinking about a title this year because banners hang forever, 
in my mind, the only guy that should be off limits is Jackson Churio, the number two or number three prospect in baseball, number one prospect for the Brewers. Anybody else, I'm personally fine with moving to get an impact bat. And it would probably cost them a few of those guys to get a guy like Goldschmidt or Arenado. Cheaper options, though, might be picking up Nelson Cruz, which we've discussed, off of the waiver wire. C.J. Cron in Colorado is having a decent year at first base. He's a left-handed bat on top of that, which always plays at AmFam Field. He's had a solid career. He's had a couple 30-plus home run years. Another name that I saw, Mike Moustakas. We'd get to use this clip again. Hello, Park Ranger. The moose is loose. (laughs) That's always fun. He split time this year between Colorado and he's in L.A. right now. Could the Angels be sellers at the deadline? If they are, they could trade Otani. Otani would cost you Churio, and I don't think that that's worth it. I don't know if it's worth it for a three-month rental for you'd probably have to trade your top five prospects for Shohei Otani. That might be a little exorbitant. Moustakas, though, is a guy you could probably get for one guy or a cash consideration. He has eight home runs this year. He's not what he was in 2018 or 2019 when the Brewers picked him up in 2018 and when he hit 35 bombs for the Brewers in 2019. He's not that guy, but he's still a guy who, if he gets the at-bats, can probably get you 20 or 25 home runs and hit 245, 250. That's a lot better than what they've got in those spots right now. The point is... They need to do something. They have made such a statement now at the beginning of the second half, and hopefully this continues for the rest of this 15-game stretch, which we have 12 games remaining, but they have made such a statement in the first three. Hopefully Matt Arnold and Atanasio and the hierarchy are looking closely at finding not one but two bats and probably one relief arm as well. The one concern I have about the bullpen, which it's hard to have a concern coming out of this weekend, if you look at the stats – Piguero, Piamps, and Williams. Those are your big three. Seventh inning Piguero, eighth inning Piamps. They are both either at or above their highest innings pitched seasons. Piguero for sure. He was only limited in L.A. the last two years. He has already pitched the most innings of his career, and Piamps, I believe, is either right at the highest or is just past it and clearly is going to be way past it by the end of the year. I worry a little bit about guys that haven't thrown 70 or 80 innings in relief and have only thrown 40 or in Peguero's case 20 we're at a point now where you've got a lot of season left and you hopefully have a playoff run coming and you're going to need these guys and they're already past the highest workload they've had in their career for that reason two bats and a bullpen arm that's all that's all I want that's all I want is two bats and a bullpen arm What a way to start the second half, though. Day off today. It continues in Philly. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I believe we've got Tehran on the hill on Tuesday. 5.45-40 start times Tuesday, Wednesday. Then an afternoon start time on Thursday as they continue the six-game road trip and 12 more games left in this 15-game stretch. What a start, though. And finally today, we'll talk a little bit about the Open Championship. This is... I'm going with Rory. I'm going Rory. It starts on Thursday, Rory has cashed us so many top five and top ten tickets. I may hedge a little bit and put a bet on him top ten or top five as well as betting on him to win. He is the odds-on favorite. He is plus 820 on my book to win. I want to say Scotty Scheffler is second and John Rahm is third. Rory's just been knocking on the door too much. At some point, he is going to win a major. I may just bet on him in perpetuity until he wins that major. He has been so, so close to the last, every major this year for the most part, and in a lot of tournaments. He's won a few regular tournaments. It feels like with his roots and this being the Open Championship, 
I got to go Rory. I'm going Rory, and I'm probably going to put a tickler on him at top five, top ten, too, in case he doesn't win it. At least we'd get something. We'd hedge on something of him having a good finish at the Open Championship. The top five, top ten odds are not out yet on my book. We'll talk about that more on Friday because I'm going to put a few of those down. We'll obviously be a day into it at that point when we record the podcast on Friday morning. We'll be a day and a half into it. The beauty of the Open Championship, if you get up real early and I do, is that it's on. It's my favorite since I've been doing the morning show on B, which goes back to 2009 now. I'm 15 years into a two-year plan. The beauty when you get up at 3 or 3.30 with the Open Championship is you can literally turn it on when you're up and it's on. And it's live. And you're actually seeing live sports at that time. Well, we'll be just about through the second round by the time we record the Friday podcast. So I felt we had to get the winner out there, and then we'll let you know what the top five, top ten bets are. We'll wait to see what happens, and then I'll tell you. <laughs> we'll wait to see who's in the top ten after day two, and then I'll act like those are my bets. No, no, no. There is only integrity in the picks we throw out there. I would never lie about that. I'll lie about anything else. We'll let you know who we had top five, top ten, or top 20 on Friday's podcast. Outright winner, though, is Rory for the Open Championship at plus 820. That'll do it for us here on your Monday morning. We will chat with you Friday. We'll be talking about the Brewer Philly series. We will see what day in history. I'm sure at some point then it must be, would it be Friday? Or no, it'll be the title this day in history for the Bucks will be on Wednesday or Thursday. I believe they had two days off after Phoenix and then came to Milwaukee for game six. We'll be on the heels of that. We'll play some audio of that as well on Friday. Brewers Phillies recap, and we'll talk about the Open Championship. We'll chat with you then. 